Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts in chapter 16? We're going to read a portion of God's Word together. Uh, a portion that um, tells of a, a marvellous conversion of one Lydia of Philippi. So let us read. I'm going to read from verse 6 and then we will finish in verse 15. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and there, follow, uh, there the following day to uh, Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Let's pray together. Father, you have done this miracle so many times. The miracle of opening the heart of an unbeliever to your, to your word, to your voice. Lord, I pray you speak again to our hearts and that you may find our hearts open by your grace. Lord, I pray that this be the case for believers and unbelievers this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, I remember the very first time that I went to uh, Marsden Cross. Uh, Marsden Cross, for those of you who don't know, is uh, on a beach in the Bay of Islands. And it marks the place where Samuel Marsden preached the first uh, Christian sermon in New Zealand in 1814. On Christmas Day in 1814. Uh, I went there with... Uh, um, actually, Angeline and I, I think we were newly married, newish, and um, went there with uh, our uh, church history lecturer from Laidlaw, uh, wonderful man, uh, very, very funny, and a great person to travel around the north with and to tell you about all the battles that took place in a way that was far more engaging than probably others would have managed it. Um, but we went to this uh, cross, Samuel Marsden 
uh, Marsden Cross. And uh, he told the story of what happened. And it was, as I said, Christmas Day, and they arrived. And a, being uh, sort of Anglicans and somewhat higher Anglicans than um, we might encounter today, they brought a pulpit ashore <laughs> and put it on the beach. You've got to have a pulpit, you know. And then they made some pews out of canoes that they turned upside down and the local um, Maori tribe came, uh, mostly out of uh, curiosity, and sat in the pews and a sermon was preached that Christmas day. A sermon in English, uh, but I think there was some translation that happened as best they could along the way. And the text for the sermon was Luke chapter 2 and verse 10. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. What a wonderful text. Not only because it was Christmas Day, but because the word that was preached to the shepherds that day, the good news had come. And that that good news was for all people. That good news had now travelled across the entire world through many, many countries and had now arrived in New Zealand and was being proclaimed for the first time. And how right it is that that beach be marked out and be remembered as a special place in the history of the church and the history of this nation. I think the, the reason, of course, that that beach is special and there's a cross there and a memorial there and people make sort of mini pilgrimages there as they're up on their summer holidays. Uh, the reason they go there is because, of course, it marks the place where it was first preached where it first arrived into New Zealand. Of course, the gospel's been preached many times in New Zealand, but only once was it preached the first time in New Zealand. And it was worth remembering and worth memorialising. I was reminded uh, this week in my prep that most countries in the world have a beach like that. Whether or not they are sure that this was the beach that it happened on or whether um, they know which beach it happened on but every country will have a beach or a marketplace or a house or something where the gospel was first preached in that region. History is full of these sorts of beaches, of these sorts of moments where the gospel first went into a region. The book of Acts, of course, is full with these sorts of beaches and these sorts of places. Every time the gospel goes to a new city, goes to a new nation, there is a first preaching of it where the cross is proclaimed and where sinners lost are given the news that could save them from their sins if they would believe it. Now we come today to another of those moments a very special moment where the gospel crosses another border and goes further than it has ever been up until this point. So today we are going to look at the entry of the gospel into the Western world. That's what this is. This is the entry of the gospel into Europe. And the first proclamation of it by this river outside of Philippi with a small group of ladies hearing the message and believing. This is where it was proclaimed. This is where it entered. Now, I don't know if there is a cross on that 
little beach or that little riverside there possibly is. Whether they found the exact place that this took place, I'm not sure. But I know that the place is there where the gospel was proclaimed and where someone believed it. Now, I don't have to tell you, I don't think, how important this movement of the gospel into Europe has been for the history of Christianity through the world. Absolutely crucial. Europe, of course, became very much the centrepiece for Christianity, for good or for evil, uh, for the next uh, many, many centuries. We are very much the beneficiaries. I think probably everybody here is a beneficiary of the gospel going to Europe. Because, of course, from Europe, it then spread out to Asia. It spread to America. It spread to uh, um, the islands. It spread to India. And it spread to Australia. And it spread to New Zealand. We are very much recipients of this great spread of the gospel which started, or at least took another major step, in the text that we have read this morning. So I want to focus this morning on this glorious moment when the gospel arrives, when it is preached, and when Lydia, the very first convert in Europe... I mean, it is, it is theoretically possible that the gospel had gone elsewhere in Europe by this stage. But this is the very first recorded moment of the gospel in Europe. I want to focus on this moment and I want to look at really what the main point of Lydia's conversion is and what it teaches us about conversion, teaches us about the sovereign work of God over salvation. And I want to try to um, step over some of the many misapplications of Lydia's conversion, of which there are a number, uh, towards what it is that we are to really glean from that conversion story. Um, I also want to, just before we get to that verse, that story, talk about a couple of preliminary things leading into that story which are relevant. I want to start by talking about the journey there, how they got to Philippi, which is important, and who they took with them, because that's uh, important as well. So let's just quickly deal with those two questions before we come directly to Lydia. How they got to Philippi is interesting because they weren't planning to go there. You notice that, right? They weren't trying to go there. They were heading for Asia, or what is now uh, Western Turkey. They were trying to go there to preach the gospel, but the Holy Spirit prevented them from sharing the gospel with anybody there. Right? That's interesting, isn't it? A doorway for gospel opportunity blocked by the Holy Spirit. You're not to go there. The Holy Spirit says to Paul. We don't know exactly how the Holy Spirit said that. It may have just been a, a, a direct voice. It may have been some providential interference or something like that. But they were clearly not to head there. So then they redirect themselves northward. This is probably the only way they've got left to go. They can't really go south because the ocean is there. Uh, they can't go uh, west because they've just been told not to go west. Uh, they can't really go east because that's where they've come from. And so they are told to, well, they decide to go north up to Bithynia, northern Turkey today. But the Holy Spirit, and now called the Spirit of Christ, interestingly enough, the Spirit of Jesus, uh, wouldn't let them go there either. So what do they do? Right? They can't go east. They can't go west. They can't go south. They can't go north. They could do what probably most of us would be um, 
quite happy doing, and that is sitting down and crying and wondering what on earth God was doing. Two massive doors closed. Instead, what they do is they go the only direction that was still available to them. There was a little corridor between Asia and Bithynia that they could go through. It was either that or give up and go home. They weren't going to do that. So they make their way through this little corridor above Asia and head to Troas. And there receive their vision to head across into Macedonia, uh, which is modern Greece. Now, what we are reminded of here is the, the many ways in which the Lord leads us. You see, oftentimes the Lord leads us by opening a door before us. And it's very obvious that this is the way we are to go. There's the pathway, there's the opportunity, this is clearly the will of the Lord. But we need to remember that the Lord very often, and maybe even sometimes more often, leads us by closing the door directly in front of us. And we need to remember that that closing of that door, that preventing of that opportunity, that blocking of that way, is every bit as much God's providential leading and guiding as God's opening a door. And we need to be as grateful and as pleased that the Lord has led us through a closed door to a different direction as through an open door that is before us. Now, it may be discouraging. You may have thought, you may have invested in an opportunity, but when the Lord closes that door, be sure that the Lord has closed it intentionally and he is wanting you to go a different way. And this is what we are to recognise as we look at this initial journey through to Mesopotamia, uh, sorry, Macedonia. Uh, they don't give up, they press on, and they find the open door waiting for them once they arrive in Troas. They get there, and the door is no longer closed in front of them, but it is open, it is wide, it is big, it comes in the form of a vision, this wonderful vision of a, a man from Macedonia speaking to them and saying, come over and help us, a vision sent from God, that they might come across and share the gospel with them. In other words, God is clearly and intentionally and very meticulously leading them on a path directly to Lydia. To a little beach or a little rocky spot beside a river outside of Philippi. That is where the Lord is taking Paul. We should also notice, though, who's with them. Who goes with them? So I don't know if you noticed uh, verse, 11, uh, sorry, verse 10. You see, all the way up to verse 10, uh, Luke is writing about they and them and the ones that were with they and them. And then he comes to verse 10 and he says this, And when Paul had seen this vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia. Did you see that? Suddenly it's gone, we. We are now going into Macedonia. It was they and them, and they're off to do this, and they came and did this, and so on and so forth. And then we sought to go into Macedonia. And then verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. And we remained in the city for some time. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the river where we supposed there would be a place to pray, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who came together. You see, who's with them now? Luke is with them now. Luke, who is so marvellously and unassumingly just weaving himself into the passage. 
Where did they find Luke? Well, they found him in Troas. I mean, they must have found him in Troas because he wasn't there before Troas. And then he got to Troas and there he was. Suddenly it's we this, we that. But there's no story that Luke weaves into the narrative about how they found him or how he came to be travelling with Paul and with Silas and with Timothy. We know that Luke was a a doctor, a physician. It could be that uh, Paul or one of the people in the party needed a doctor and maybe they bumped into him in Troas or something happened. But in any any way, uh, in some way, the Lord has moved to bring Luke, amazingly, into their team. Now, you can trace these wee passages through the book of Acts in various places and and really pick up what Luke is doing and where he goes. So um, we have Luke, we have the wee passages throughout this chapter, and then they uh, disappear in chapter 17. Uh, they disappear in chapter 17 after Luke, uh, sorry, after Paul and Silas and Timothy leave Philippi. In other words, Luke stays in Philippi. We then have the wee passages picked up again in chapter 20 when they return to Philippi on the third missionary journey. So Luke is there, they've returned to Philippi, and then Luke joins them again. We have the wee passages again in chapter 21 as Paul is travelling to Jerusalem. We have Luke joining with them on the way to Jerusalem. And then it is picked up again in chapter 27 and 28 as Luke accompanies Paul to Rome. And we know that that Luke was with Paul in Rome because Paul says so. Uh, in 2 Timothy 4. So Luke has been accompanying them and is with them now. And it's very interesting that this um, wonderful man, Luke, just doesn't really say anything about himself. He's not interested in glorifying himself. He's not interested in ego or sharing his testimony. He's interested in sharing the wonderful way in which the gospel has spread into the world. These wee passages also help us, I think, have greater confidence in the details of the narrative. And they also give us great confidence in the authority of the Apostle Paul as he goes about the world preaching the gospel as he does. So I just, I saw that and I got excited about it and I was trying to find a way to weave it into the sermon. And I don't think I've quite managed it, but Luke was there, that's the point. What I want to do is turn now to the main event of the story. Luke and Paul and Timothy and Silas, all now arriving in Philippi, directed by the sovereign hand of the Lord to this beach, to this place, uh, Philippi, that was a, a Roman colony. And what Paul does when he gets there is is very interesting. He gets there and um, he wants to go to the synagogue. He wants to go to the synagogue because that is the place where he can preach the gospel. That is the place where uh, he will get a hearing for the gospel. That is a place where uh, he can bring converts into the the team that can uh, then share the gospel with others. So he tries to find the synagogue. The problem is there's no synagogue in Philippi. And so... What he does is he hears of a place where uh, faithful God-fearers have been gathering on the Sabbath day in order to pray. And it has been down by the river. So they've heard that that this gathering takes place on the 
Sabbath day. So they wait in the city until the Sabbath day. They want to take, they want to take the gospel first to these people. That's interesting. Uh, because if they take it to the Gentiles first, the Jews probably won't listen to them, right? They'll, be, they'll muddy themselves with the Gentiles. So they wait, they go to the riverside, and they um, find a place to pray and a place to uh, enjoy the Sabbath. But when they get there, they don't find a large group of passionate Jews meeting together for prayer. What they do, rather, is they find a small gathering of ladies on the Sabbath day praying down by the river. In other words, Paul, who has been blocked from going to Asia, who has been blocked from going to Bithynia, who has been uh, forced through a little narrow corridor and now called across to Macedonia and now finds himself by a little river for what purpose? A little mob of ladies praying by a river. Now, you could get discouraged at that point. You could think to yourself, well, this seems like an odd, uh, an odd place that the Lord has led. And yet, Paul does not see it as a, another closed door, but rather he sees it as the open door that it is. He doesn't see this as the um, another uh, clear indication that the Lord is not in this, that the Lord has not led him to this place, but he sees it as a clear opportunity and clear open door for the gospel. And what we will find is that the door is open far more widely than he thinks. That the door that the Lord has opened is not just a door to share the gospel in Macedonia, but a door into the very heart of a woman present there at that time. Again, someone called by God's sovereign purposes to be in the right place at the right time. A travelling saleswoman who doesn't even really live there, she's from Thyatira, who just really happens to be there um, trading her goods and is there right when the gospel arrives and these things come together so, so perfectly. He preaches his first sermon in Europe, the first sermon in the Western world. And he gets one convert, well, one convert plus her family. A wonderful, wonderful start to a wonderful ministry that will eventually set fire to the entire Western world. Happens in this moment. Now, as I said, the, um, the narrative of, of Lydia's conversion has been used and abused somewhat uh, to mean all sorts of things that really have nothing to do with the story uh, that we have in the, in the text. So, for example, one of the things that it is used for regularly is to justify infant baptism, right? Because it's her and her household that were uh, converted. Another thing that it has been used to try to justify is... Um, woman in leadership because she uh, had a house that people would meet in and therefore she must have been the pastor of that church. This is the way the argument has gone. In fact it's even been used, uh, oddly enough, to try to argue against women in leadership in the church by more complementarian 
um, minded people because, of course, the first thing she does after she gets saved is she goes home <laughs> and she starts to cook and she starts to host. And so this is a clear indication of uh, a woman's place and so on it goes. So none of that has anything to do with the text. Um, these are not the, uh, the points of application that we are to draw uh, from this passage. But if I could just um, dwell on one or two just very briefly. It doesn't have anything to do with infant baptism. Uh, the reason it doesn't have anything to do with infant baptism is because no infants are mentioned in the text that get baptised. There is a baptism of her household, but no mention of infants being baptised in her household. And I would even uh, point out that um, it seems very, very unlikely, given who she is, that there would be infants in her household at the time of this infant at the time of this household baptism. Uh, a couple of reasons for that: she probably isn't married, right? Uh, otherwise, her husband would likely be mentioned at some stage along the way. Now, given that she's not married, it makes it very likely that she doesn't have young children. She may have been married in the past. Her husband may have died. Her husband may have left. Something may have happened. She may have older children. We don't know. But it seems unlikely, given the fact she's not married, that there would be infants in her household at the time. It also seems unlikely there would be infants in her household at the time because of the trade that she was involved in. She was a, a traveller. She was a saleswoman. She lived, uh, or at least came from, Thyatira and was a trader in purple goods. Uh, purple goods being very valuable. Purple was a very uncommon colour. They had to, I looked into this, they had to extract purple from the, um, a gland in shellfish. I'm sure the shellfish didn't enjoy that. And uh, they would use this, this inky thing to stain or to dye clothing and then they would sell it and it was very, very expensive. Uh, usually just worn by royalty or by very, very wealthy people. So she was a, trade, a tradeswoman uh, in this trade and obviously very successful, able to own homes uh, in uh, various cities, including in Philippi. But that, again, would suggest that she doesn't have young children. If she's travelling, if she's selling things, if she's uh, on the road a lot, it seems unlikely that she would have young children. So I don't think we could use this as, a, as an argument as it has been used for infant baptism. I also don't think it can be used as an argument for um, uh, women pastors. Uh, because uh, being the owner of the house in which a church meets in is a different thing from pastoring a church. Right? Um, churches weren't really attached to buildings. Churches were groupings of people that met in various different places. It's only maybe more recently in history that churches have been, the word church has been used to refer to a building. The church is referring to the people and the people might meet in a house. Or a building. Okay. So what is it about? What is the takeaway from Lydia's conversion and conversion in this way? Well, we've mentioned a couple of things already. We've mentioned that it is the Lord who sends missionaries. It is the Lord who sovereignly brings apostles and prophets and missionaries and those who are to bring the gospel to specific individuals, to specific cities, specific places. We've seen that small beginnings are not to be despised. 
That even though Paul arrives and it is a small group of ladies beside a river outside of a city, this is where the great Western Christian movement started. But I think more than all of that, I think the main thing that we are to take away from this story of Lydia's conversion is that it is the Lord who saves from first to last. That it is the Lord who saves and it is the Lord who opens hearts and it is the Lord that makes people willing and able to believe. See verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. I don't know if you've ever asked this question. Uh, why is it that when the gospel is proclaimed, some people believe it and some people do not? That seems like a very straightforward and rather important question. If it is, of course, our desire that everybody would believe, that everybody would receive, asking the question why somebody believes and another person doesn't is a very important question to ask. And I think if the, the Bible didn't help us out with verses like this, I think we would be very much scratching our heads as to why on earth more people don't believe the gospel. After all, it can very often be the case that two people with a very similar background, with very similar temperaments, with very similar uh, capacities, with very similar uh, intellect, uh, with very similar interests, hear the gospel, and yet one accepts, one believes, and the other does not. Why? And the answer that the Bible gives us is this. The Lord is the one who opens hearts. The Lord is the one, and it must be him. The Bible is consistently describing this process. The Bible regularly describes the human heart as sitting in one or other of two conditions. Hard or soft. Stone or flesh. One or the other. And what is it that makes the difference between the two? The Lord. It is the Lord who takes a heart that is stone and makes it a heart that is flesh. A heart that is hard and makes it a heart that is soft and receptive. Now, it is certainly the case that hearts that are made of flesh, Christian hearts, soft hearts towards the things of the gospel can seem very hard at times and irritatingly so. It can also be the case that hearts that are hard towards the gospel may seem very soft in other ways. But what is plainly taught in the scripture is that a heart cannot change from hard to soft on its own. That a heart must be touched, must be transformed, must be softened, must be squeezed, must be transplanted by the sovereign hand of God. This is the only way, the only way in which a person's heart is saved. Now it's very interesting that um, we have the salvation of Lydia and then immediately the baptism and the salvation of her family. The assumption there is that the Lord did this work, this softening work, in both Lydia and her family. That it happened through her preaching. 
that she went home after hearing the gospel, maybe some of her household were with her down at the river. She went home and she taught her family. She said, this is what I have heard. This is what I've uh, come to believe. Maybe Paul was there as well. And the family believed and the family was baptised. And while you can't take that to be evidence for infant baptism, what you can take it to be is a great encouragement to evangelise your family. Amen? That this seems to be the way the Lord often works. That a person within the family, maybe the head, maybe the leader, maybe the the matriarch or the patriarch, whoever is around, becomes a believer, brings the gospel to the family, and the family gets saved. Now, I, I press that upon you because I know that many of you have children or brothers and sisters or other people within your family who are not saved. And I want to just encourage you to not give up on them. I want to encourage you that you have a role in bringing the gospel to your family. That you have a role that has been given to you by God and may well be sovereignly used by God in order to bring salvation to your family. So Lydia has her heart opened. A heart of flesh given. A heart of flesh for the family given. A tremendous miracle of softening and wooing and winning a sovereign work of God and God alone. Now I want you to recognise just how much God has done for Lydia. I want you to see that because then you will see just how much God has done for you. See, here's how God saved Lydia and here's how God saved Lydia's family. He stopped Paul, the apostle, preaching in Asia. He put a big wall in front of him and said, don't go there. He then put another wall in front of Bithynia and said, don't go there. He forced Paul and his team to go through this narrow corridor and land in Troas, still not knowing what to do. They get a vision, they come across, they go to the river outside the city, they preach and she is saved. That's how much God has done for Lydia. And that is only the start of it. He moves into her heart. He opens her heart to receive the gospel. And then he goes with her to her family and opens their hearts as well. Do you see how much God has done for Lydia? Do you see how much God has done for Lydia? God didn't have to do that. If one of the steps in that process was skipped over or if Paul was allowed to go to Bithynia or to Asia... Lydia would have gone to that beach that Sabbath, done her Jewish prayers, headed back home to Troas, not heard the gospel, not been saved. Do you know what happened after that, though? The gospel that went to Lydia, that went to her house, then exploded through Europe. It went to all of the countries within Europe. It eventually made it to England. From England it exploded again. It eventually made it to the Pacific Islands, to Asia, to India, to Australia, to New Zealand. It eventually made it to the ears of your grandparents or your great-grandparents or your parents. They had their hearts open to believe it. It was then transmitted down to you when you were born and you heard it and the same miracle was done in your heart 
that you might believe. That is just as astounding, in fact, a thousand times more astounding, that the Lord providentially brought the gospel to you through that incredible process. That every single step in that chain toward the gospel getting to you was sovereignly ordained by God, that your heart might be open and receive the gospel. Isn't that incredible? Do you know how much God has done for you? The entire history of the world has been crafted to save you. Do you know that? The entire history of the world. Every single conversation, every single beach where there's a little cross where the gospel arrived. Is there because God is bringing the gospel to you. That you might be saved through it. Do you understand that? The miracle of the transmission of the gospel, that you might receive it and hear it and believe it and be saved through it. And then the greater miracle of having a heart opened within you that you might receive it. The Lord did not have to do that. You're not a Christian by accident. You see how much the Lord has done for Lydia. And you see how much the Lord has done for you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we bow in worship and reverence as we look back on history and the direction that the gospel took through this world to bring to our ears and to our open hearts by your grace. Lord, I pray that we would know with great joy and confidence that you have saved your people, that you have turned history into knots in order to bring your gospel to your people. The number of doors that have been closed through history in order to channel your gospel message through the narrow narrow corridor to our hearts is absolutely mind-blowing. The way in which you have sent and preserved missionaries and their message, that we might know it and hear it and believe it. Father, we bow in great love and appreciation for the gospel message that has met us and saved us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.